Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, there's several people I've talked to today that are new, so especially say welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, parents, if you have any kids that you'd like to go to age-specific teaching that's offered now during the sermon, head out towards the back, and some volunteers will be out there to meet you. Everybody else will be in Colossians uh, 3. Uh, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy today to open up the Scriptures uh, with you. Uh, we are uh, a church that uh, believes the same thing every other church believes, that God speaks through His Word. And so we're excited to start each week by hearing a, a fresh teaching from the Word that would be applicable to our lives coming up this week. Uh, for most of us, uh, family and work, or perhaps school, will occupy the lion's share of our time. I mean, the other things we do, we, we've got to sleep. Um, church is integral to our lives as believers. We might have a few hobbies on the side, uh, and there's those petty little things you got to get done around the house. But except for those things, the majority of our investment in terms of time for most of us will fall into two buckets, the bucket of family and the bucket of time. It should not surprise us then that the Bible gives instructions on those endeavors. The Bible talks to us about our work and the Bible talks to us about our families. In the late 1800s, at the opening of a university, a man named Abraham Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, mine. You may have heard that. It's a pretty famous quote. What Kuiper voiced of the university is certainly true of the home and of the workplace. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is preeminent. He's first all things were made by Him and made for Him. Jesus is the head of the new creation. So consequently, it would be entirely appropriate for God to look at our homes and say, that's mine. And it would be appropriate for Him to say of our school or our work, that's mine. It's, it is His. So the question we're going to seek to try to study together this morning and to answer is, how does the Lordship of Jesus daily impact the functioning of the relationships we have at home and work? If those things are God's, then how does the fact that they're God's belong, belonging to Him, how does that impact us in our everyday relationships? Colossians chapter 3, the end of the chapter is going to answer that question. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one underneath the seats in front of you. They're blue. And uh, I will be reading from page 573. If you'd like to follow along, please feel free to take that if you don't have uh, a Bible of your own. It says this in Colossians chapter 3. By the way, before I read it, this wasn't without controversy then, when it was written, and it won't be without controversy this morning among us. The controversies, though, were quite different, and I look forward to helping you see those in a few minutes. 
Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. It, it, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants, your bondservants, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's Word. Our passage today is uh, among a section that is what theologians call a household code. It describes in its original context, so in the first century, the people who consisted or made up a home. There was a, in most homes, a husband and a wife, there were children and parents, and there were bondservants or slaves and masters. You'll notice that there are three pairs then of relationships, wives and husbands first, children and parents second, bondservants and masters third. And interestingly, each set of relationships in this text gets addressed personally. Now, Paul, who was the human author through whom God spoke the book of Colossians, did not invent this form of writing. It's not as though just sort of willy-nilly, he said, I want to speak to those three pairs of relationships. No, this was a common convention in writing in that day which makes sense because those were the people who made up most homes. And so there's many authors scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world who spoke of those three sets of relationships. But there are some things in Paul's household code that are very, very different from the other ancient household codes. Why? Well, it's because as we've been studying together through Colossians, when you get to know Jesus Christ, then everything about you begins to change. You have access to a whole different way of living because you have a new power source and you've been given a new identity. And so, of course, if Jesus changes everything about us, then he's going to change the nature of our relationships, especially those relationships that matter most the ones we're the most close with the most often. And so it's natural that Paul would speak to these relationships. For Paul, these are what we might call Christ-shaped relationships because Jesus is transforming how we treat each other. And that's simply not true of the other ancient household codes. They're very, very, very different. And so what I'd like to do today is ask you to do something you may not normally do on Sunday mornings. I want to encourage you to think. I want to read for you some of the, just a small sample of some of the ancient household codes 
And as we read them, I want to ask you to do something, and that's to keep your Bible open in front of you and to sort of mentally be comparing, for example, what did Aristotle say about those relationships versus what does God say? What did Paul write in the New Testament? This will take maybe five or six minutes, and the reason I want to do it is because I think the contrast you'll see between what secular authors wrote and what Christians wrote, that will help us understand what's in our New Testament, perhaps better than anything else. And so I'm going to show you three, uh, it's just a three kind of day. I want to show you three different authors and what they wrote in their household codes. The most famous one comes from Aristotle. Aristotle, uh, as you may recall, lived in the 300s BC, and he wrote from Athens. He wrote not as, a, not as a religious man, but as a philosopher. And here's what he says. It'll be on the screens. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts, and the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships. So what do we see here right off the bat? Aristotle, some 400 years before Paul wrote, is talking about the same three groups or pairs of relationship. But notice that he lists the authority first and the follower second. Did you see that? This means yes. He does the exact opposite of what Paul would later do. Paul lists the follower or the one who is subordinate and the one who is in a position of leadership second. Now, that will become important as we talk about this later. Now, let's get into the meat of it. Here's the next quote from him. Hence, there are by nature various classes. Does that sound the same? As Paul are different. There are various classes of rulers and ruled. For the free rules the slave, the male, the female, and the man and the child in a different way. They all possess the various parts of the soul, but possess them in different ways. For the slave has got the deliberative part not at all. I've actually taken out the most offensive parts of what he says about slavery. I thought that is enough to give you a sense of how he thought about people who were slaves. The female has it, but without full authority, while the child has it, but in an undeveloped form. What is he saying? He's saying there are classes of people and different classes of people are worth more and worth less. And they are worth more and worth less, not because of the class in which they were born, but because of who they are intrinsically in their nature. Do you hear the difference? What he said about the slave is the clearest. He's saying their soul is deficient, and that's why they're a slave. They have no ability to, to deliberate at all. 
He says far worse things about slaves, by the way. Now, the final section I'll show you from Aristotle. It is a part of the household science, he's speaking here to the husband, to rule over wife and children, over both as freemen, yet not with the same mode of government, but over the wife to exercise republican government, and over the children monarchical. So at least he's got this going for him. He's saying, husbands, don't boss your wife around the same exact way you do your kid. I'm glad he got that part right. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female, the older and more fully developed person than the younger and immature. Now, I'm just the reporter. I wore my Kevlar today. That's pretty different than Paul's household code. Because he's describing people being lower or greater because of something intrinsically in them. He's not speaking about role. Rather, he's speaking about worth. Now, a couple hundred years later, another guy named uh, Philo wrote. Philo was a Jew who lived in the city of Alexandria, and he wrote in Greek. So, um, if, if you're familiar with history, then, this would have been somebody who was called a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was, he was thoroughly indoctrinated in Greek culture. His, his ethnicity was Jewish, but his way of life was Greek. Now, he also wrote a household code, and I'll just read you a smaller section of it. This guy's a little bit softer, all right? You'll be encouraged in that way and discouraged in others. Here's what he says. Wives shall serve their husbands, not indeed in any particular way so as to be insulted by them, but in the spirit of reasonable obedience in all things. Parents shall govern their children for their preservation and benefit, and everyone shall be the Lord of his own possessions. By way of possessions, he's speaking of slaves. The same principle extends to other things over which he is the owner. If a man by any words dictates that which is requisite to support a wife, she shall be sacred and entitled to receive the support. If a father makes such a promise to a son or a master to a servant, the rule is the same. So this is a little bit softer than Aristotle, but still not much here we would really feel enthusiastic about, right? Why? Well, because in the ancient world, uh, slaves, wives, and children weren't full people. They were th things in various degrees to be ruled over. And that was because constitutionally they were seen as inferior. And yet we have the same three groupings being spoken of here. Now, let me show you one more. Incidentally, both of those documents were written by or during the time of Christ and widely circulated. So it's very, very, very likely that the Colossians knew what Philo said and what Aristotle said. This last one 
was after Jesus. It's written by a guy named Josephus. Most of what we know about Jewish history and a lot of what we know about Rome and Roman rule was because of this Jew named Josephus. He was born uh, in Israel not long after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Here's what he said. For saith the Scripture, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. You may be able to see there on the screen that there's a quotation around that. A woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Uh, Incidentally, a, a few days ago when I was doing research on this, the translation of this text that I read had a little footnote in the, from the original, right after the word uh, things. And it says at the bottom, and I quote, um, this is nowhere to be found in existing scriptures. So evidently, Josephus uh, had one of those moments that we often have when we say, well, the Bible says, and then we say something, and we have absolutely no idea if it's actually in the Bible, or if so, where? Because we just made it up. That's not in the Scriptures. He goes on to say, let her therefore be obedient to him, not so that he should abuse her. Thanks, Josephus. Glad you had to specify that. But that she may acknowledge her duty to her husband, for God hath given the authority to the husband. Then he went on to address parents. Parents should be honored immediately after God himself. And all the parents said, picking and choosing, huh? What part of Josephus you like? Now, I'll stop here. This is a tiny, 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 tiny sample of the material that's out there, even among just those three people. Aristotle, for example, goes on page after page after page after page after page. And his view in particular, what's most offensive, is he says that uh, slaves are just objects. They're less than human. He calls them a tool. Not in the way one buddy might say to another, you're such a tool, but rather, actually, you get a hammer to drive a nail, you get a slave to do whatever it is you wanted them to do. How different that is from what we find in the Scriptures. What is the same, though? Let's make a few observations. What's the same? Well, the same three pairs of relationships are addressed. But what's different are the things that are much more interesting. What's different, let me just point out a few. And maybe first and most significantly is this. Wives, workers, and children. Notice as you look at this list in the book of Colossians that you are spoken to, not about. You are noticed. You're addressed. You're seen. You're heard. Now, today you would expect that here, You wouldn't expect to be ignored or to be looked over or to be talked about and not to. And yet that would not have been the case in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, uh, men generally 
held all civil and religious rights. And so many of those attitudes, no doubt, were still prevalent uh, even in the church because people were just beginning to learn what it looked like to live in Christ in the world. So if you can imagine with me that we're not at 13th and Mill in Tempe, Arizona in the United States in the year 2021, but we're somewhere in the, in the 60s or maybe the early 70s in a town called Colossae, and we're sitting in the church hearing for the very first time the letter of Colossians read. Wives, what would have absolutely shocked you is not that you were told to follow your husband's leadership, but that you were spoken to at all. And not only that you were spoken to, but you were spoken to first. That God gave you priority. That you were addressed before your husband. And you weren't merely talked about. You were talked with. That didn't happen in any other ancient household code that I can find. Same thing goes for children. Children were thought of as um, not yet developed enough to be worthy of giving attention to. And bond servants or slaves had no right at all. So while both the follower and the authority are given directives, the follower is lifted up in such a way that what we see in Colossians is submission is in no way based on inferiority. This has to do with function and responsibility and role. It has nothing to do with what you are constitutionally or how much of a soul you got. You got the same. We're all equal. This is not about who is better than another. It's about representing God in God's world in a way that's orderly, in which authority is used for good and not for harm. Now, notice also another really interesting thing is that the person in authority is told what they're to do with that authority. In other words, they're directed into how they're to exercise the responsibility that they're given. And they're commanded to do things that don't exist in any other ancient household code. To tell a husband that your duty is to love your wife. I don't know of another household code that that exists in outside of the Bible. The idea of telling her, of him, him, that she is worth your affection would have been foreign. These are ways in which the code differs now, the last one I want to point out to you that I think is the, maybe the most powerful is notice if you look closely in your Bible that 
In each case, wife, child, and a bondservant. You are explicitly told not only what to do, but who you're ultimately doing it for. And that is not said to the one who's in authority. Isn't that fascinating? Now, if it was just wives, do this, submit because of the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. If it was just that, then we'd have to say, maybe no particular point is being made there. But if you look closely, it says, wives, do this because of fitting in the Lord. Children, do this as to the Lord. Bond servants, do this. And then the Lord's mentioned three times. That's not a coincidence. What's being emphasized is ultimately that when we are in relationships such that we are free to say what's on our minds, and yet when push comes to shove, it is our responsibility to follow. When we are in relationships like that, then the authority that stands, if you will, between us and our ultimate authority, the Lord. That authority, there is a sense in which we can look through them to the one we're ultimately submitting to. And so what that means is just a word to wives, for example, for an example of the three. Your husband may be in some areas of his life rather schmuckish. And you may have that area of your life, by God's grace, pretty much figured out. Your submission to Him is not dependent on His worthiness or Him earning that submission. In other words, you don't have to follow only when He's further along than you. Because this isn't about skill or ability or aptitude. It's about following your Lord. You see the difference? This has a way of super, super, super ultra elevating you. Because what you're doing is you're ultimately obeying and worshiping and following your Lord. And your Lord sees. He sees you. He notices. He takes delight in. This is a very practical way that these uh, codes are so, so, so different than the other ancient household codes. This was a radical message because slaves were thought of as property, wives had no rights, children were not doted over as they are today. But being in Christ does not eradicate the relationships we have. No, Jesus is in the work of transforming us so that we relate to one another differently, not so that all our relationships and the good structure around them go away. And so what that means is wives are still to submit to their husbands, but not as them being inferior and him being superior. You see, ladies, elsewhere the Scripture calls you a helpmate to your husband. That does not mean 
anything inferior about you. Don't you see, to be a helpmate is to be someone in a position of strength. For you to help me means you got something I don't have. I can't get X done without you. You're not inferior. You possess as an equal abilities, traits, qualities, dispositions, skills. I don't have and I can't get apart from you. Do you hear the difference? The household code in Colossians was scandalous in that day because the master husband and father came to see that while he had responsibility to lead the home, God was the one in charge, not him. And it was scandalous because it lifted up women, children, and slaves. They are not property or objects. They are equals, beloved, known to God, noticed by God loved and cared for by God. Now, with that in mind, let's spend our remaining few minutes considering the three pairs of relationships. First, wives and husbands. But before we jump in, really, and look at the commands, I think we just have to acknowledge the pain that this whole conversation brings up. It might be this morning that you came into church with a smile on your face, And now you're wishing we were all still in masks because that smile is gone. Because the mere mention of one of these subjects brings up the difficulties you have faced. I would love to say this morning to the one who's been abused by a spouse. I'd love to say to the one who got married perhaps in a room like this, holding hands, with your lover, making promises that you expected would last forever, only for that spouse to betray you. I'd love to say to the widow and widower, I'd love to say to those of you who are in marriages that are far more painful than joyful. I'd love to say to those who have asked God for a spouse for years and years and years, and yet you still sleep alone. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. Your church to the degree that we're able in our sanctification process thus far. We see you. We love you. We are not indifferent to you. You are not on the outside looking in. Yes, the family is the basic building block of society. But that building block is busted. It has been smashed. And I don't mean out there. I mean in here. May you experience God's presence and power and comfort today in the ways that you so desperately want and need.
Now, to those who are wives currently, wives, verse 18 says that it is fitting for you to submit to your husband. To follow is not old-fashioned, nor is it merely cultural. It is the divine pattern set in Scripture for every single marriage. And we see it from the very earliest pages of the Bible. And far from being oppressive in the days in which the Bible was written, I've demonstrated to you that that's not the intent and that's not the function. Instead, it's lifting up. And it's not about who's inferior and superior. It's about role and responsibility. It is good and beautiful because ultimately your submission, your glad following puts the gospel on display. If you want to read more about that, look at Ephesians chapter 5. That's where another household code exists in the New Testament, and it has a very extended section in which it becomes extremely confusing to figure out. Is this actually talking about husband and wife or Christ and the church? You see, your following wives is a pattern of how Jesus on earth followed the Father. And husbands, your love for your wife is a pattern of how Christ loves the church. So this isn't something to argue about. It's something to revel in and enjoy. Wives, submission is not a right your husband is to demand. If he pounds on the kitchen table saying, you'll do what I want, then I think you're free to walk away. Because he's not treating you the way the scriptures would call him to. No, this submission is a, is a, a, a voluntary, a glad disposition of the heart. Much more so than a set of some particular actions. No two couples who are working this out will actually look exactly the same, nor would they need leading and following in the exact same areas. It's not how this works. Each marriage is like a snowflake, a little bit different from every other one. So don't force a cultural mode here. Instead, Think about uniquely as a wife, how can I support and bless my husband? Remember, wives, that submission to another human being is always relative. Always. And what I mean by that is, if your husband tells you that you are to do something that would cause you to disobey God or end up in jail, then you are under no obligation whatsoever to do it quite the opposite. You don't disobey husband. You don't obey husband to disobey God, ever. And if you're ever in that situation, uh, your church should be the first place you call. We get some of those kind of calls, and as your pastors, we're glad to get involved. 
Because authority is never to be used to ask someone or to demand someone to do something that God says no to. Now, husbands, your call is to love your wives. This love includes a resolute commitment to not be harsh with her. And that is so bizarre when you compare Paul's household code to every other code. There was no mention of love in those. Did you notice? Your duty is to treat her as your equal, to treat her in love, regardless of your wife, your wife's behavior, skills, or health. Loving her means that after the Lord, you regard her as your next principal relationship on earth. She's to be of a nature and a class distinct to you. And she ought to know it because of how you treat her. Outside of your salvation, she is one of God's greatest, greatest gifts to you. Regardless of how this morning went. She is your equal. She's your heir to salvation. And she was a daughter of Jesus Christ. She's the daughter of the Father, God the Father, before she was your wife. And she will be a daughter of the Father long after she's your wife. If you're one of those unusual people that get married in your 20s today, and you live a normal lifespan, you might be wife for 60 years. But that is a tiny blip in all eternity. You will always be daughter, daughter of the Father. And so men, treat her like that. If you don't, you will have God to deal with. She is to be sacrificed for, listened to, prayed over, provided for, protected, nurtured, reminded continually of who she is in Christ. And this should go without saying, loving her means that you have driven a stake in the ground in which you've said, when I am tempted to lust after others, I will not do so. Men, culturally, we are well beyond a point of crisis in men exercising a godly, humble, courageous, self-sacrificial leadership in their home. We are a hot, hot mess. So what do we do about that? Well, one aspect of that is many of us did not grow up with fathers. And those of us that did, statistically few of them actually lived what I'm talking about. And so it's difficult to aspire to something you've never seen, isn't it? I mean, you may sincerely want it, men, but if you don't actually know what does that look like day to day to day to day, of course this is difficult. So I want to encourage you, if you're a husband and you think, I need help, I want to do this better than I've done it. I want a year from now, if we hit another text on 
households for me not to feel like vomiting like I do right now. Well, what do you do? The first thing you do is you repent. You go to God and say, I've really botched this one up. And then you tell her, your wife, I've really botched this one up. Will you forgive me? And you receive whatever she said without any hint of defensiveness. And then the third thing you do is you look around the room and you see who's a little older than me or who's a little further along than me spiritually and go to that guy this week and say, I have made a mess of my home and I need help. Would you talk with me for a while about what godly husbanding looks like? What would it be like if this church was full of relationships like that? Wouldn't it be beautiful? Wouldn't it be wonderful? I hope that one of the things that comes out of this morning is that some of those relationships form and that there's a revolution that begins to occur in this church of godly men. Now, children and parents, you thought you were going to get off the hook, didn't you? Children, uh, kids, your parents are going to make some big mistakes. They are imperfect. I made one recently that's taking me a long time to get over. Kids, your parents are going to get squeezed by the pressures of life, and on occasion, that squeezing is going to cause them to pop, and the goo that flies out is going to hit you. You are the most likely candidate. Every now and then, kids, believe it or not, your parents won't have any idea what to do about a particular situation. You'll want something they don't know if they should give. You'll want to go somewhere they're not sure what they should say. There'll be some situation that you've faced that they don't know how to address. Be patient with them. Kids, it pleases the Lord for you to follow your parents. And maybe the most important thing I'll say today to parents or children is this. The more you fight, argue, resist, and bemoan the leadership of your parents, the worse and more difficult your entire life will be. Notice I didn't say that weekend or that month, but rather your whole life. And parents, I think you need to hear this too. Um, I think today it's common that a, a parents would think of themselves as, I want to be my child's best friend. And you almost can't stand the thought that temporarily my kid might hate me. But that is not for your child's betterment. You see, in God's design, a, a child learns how to submit to any and every authority they will face in life in the first couple of years of their existence. And they learn it in the home. 
And if your child leaves your home never learning to submit to you as the authority, their entire lives are going to be hard. Because everywhere we go, there are leaders and there are followers. Parents, you've got to, got to, got to have some set of things that are not arbitrary, that are not about your personal preferences, that are not about making your life easier. They're about right and wrong. That you draw a line in the sand and say, that thing ain't happening. And if it does, here are the consequences. And then allow yourself to be yelled at, cried over, given nasty looks, and be temporarily quite unhappy with. As your child gets a little older, they will thank you for it. To those of you who have little, 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 little kids, like infants, one-year-olds, if you'll do this work at, at one, two, three, four, five, it's almost all done by that point. Because they will have developed the pattern. And when they get into the teen years, they'll flex their muscles a bit. That's good and right. But the pattern is still down under there. And so once the testosterone isn't exploding, by God's grace, the pattern will reemerge. Unless mom or dad tells you to do something that would be sinful or illegal, just do it. Your life as an adult will be better if you do. Parents, uh, your kids are gifts from God. They're not possessions or problems. Hearing a little voice say, Mom, or dad's tickling your son and him saying again, again, again. These, these are glorious heaven breaking into earth moments. There are tens of millions of people around the world and in this room who would do anything to have those moments. Treasure them. There are gifts from God. You are going to blink and they'll be gone. Make the most of every opportunity. Fathers, verse 21 speaks directly to you. Your authority as the head of the house is a powerful stewardship. And your son or daughter, in ways I don't, I don't know why, I can't explain it, but they will look to you for love, acceptance, and approval in a way that is different from literally every other person on the planet. You can do tremendous good to build them up, or you can do tremendous harm by tearing down. Be a source of unparalleled blessing to your sons. Teach your daughter what a good, godly man is like so she won't go find a really cruddy one to be her husband. Show them by the steadiness of your disposition that God their father 
is never wringing his hands in a fret, trying to figure out what to do with them. Don't provoke. With a calm Christ-likeness, be the soothing source of inspiration. Now, if you glance at 3.22 to 4.1 in your Bibles, notice all of those verses deal with masters and slaves. And this raises a host of questions, and we're almost out of time, so i got to go really quick here. It's estimated that when Paul wrote Colossians, there were millions and millions and millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, the best estimates say in Rome and perhaps in Italy, but definitely in Rome, one out of every three people were slaves. Now, I'm thankful that for most of the world, that's no longer the case. One human being literally owning another is ripe for problems. And any history of slavery shows that not to be lacking with issues. Yet the kind of slavery Paul wrote of in Colossians 3 was not the horrendous racial slavery here of the United States. I'm not saying that being a slave in Rome uh, was easy or ideal. But when you read Colossians 3, it's important not to read on top of it chattel American slavery in which, horrendously, we stole black people out of their beds in Africa and carted them to the United States. Slaved, they were slaves then for the rest of their lives. Uh, Paul is not talking about that kind of slavery. Praise God that has stopped. The horrors of what America did have left a terrible stain on this nation. And that stain is still there. Some stains you got to learn to live with. You can't undo them. You can only seek to do better in the future. As far as I know, no one, no one hearing me online or in the room is owned by another human being. And so, is there any application for us at all from these verses? I think there is. Because the one person out of every three in the Roman Empire, that was their whole economic system. It's how things got done. It was the the labor, the workforce of the greatest city at that point in civilization. I think the closest parallel today is the employee-employer relationship. It's not exactly the same because most of us don't live with our bosses. Can I get a hallelujah? (laughs) But some of us have jobs in which some days it feels as though we are being treated as bond servants, doesn't it? And so the instruction here seems to fit. Friends, follow your boss. Don't make him or her regret hiring you. Work hard. Work hard as unto the Lord. So that even if that boss is not all that worthy of following, you still follow. Because you're ultimately following the Lord. And bosses... If you supervise anyone in any capacity, uh, I want to be really blunt here. 
and then I better quit because I tend to get more feisty the longer I go. If you supervise someone, the, the responsibility of being a boss is not to be attained in order that you no longer have to do the crap you didn't want to do. If that is your motive for being a supervisor, you should tender your resignation today because that inevitably means you will misuse the one under you. You should aspire to or exercise your responsibility as a supervisor and see it as a stewardship. You've been given a gift. That gift is, I've got people, I'm responsible to help flourish. Authority you see in the scriptures, authority in the Bible is good. It's right. It's helpful. Your authority is to be used for the blessing and betterment of the one under you. If you don't want to be that kind of boss, then for God's sake, don't be a boss. Friends, when Christ comes into our lives, everything begins to change, including the house and the work. By God's grace, may we live like it this week. Father, the room was very quiet this morning. I thank you in your kindness for people's attentiveness and for the Spirit's presence and involvement today. There's some homework we need to do based on what we've heard. And I pray each person would go about that. I pray that where there needs to be uh, repentance and forgiveness, there would be. Where there needs to be rejoicing that some lessons have been learned and progress has been made, there would be. That there would be a different orientation now to the household, to the family, to employment. Because we are part of a new humanity in which Christ is our head and we seek to live like him through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.